You're listening to Le Flaneur Politique with Michael de Percy. Technology has changed the nature of warfare significantly. So today I spoke with Professor Peter Lay, Director of the National Security Institute at the University of Canberra and also the former Chief of the Australian Army. Thank you for joining with me today, Peter. I appreciate your time. I thought we could maybe talk about uh, a few issues about technology and warfare, uh, but particularly how it relates to uh, things like the, the news media and the news media cycle. And I'd like to sort of work through this idea of technology and then finish with an idea of what war looks like today, especially now that we're moving into the robotic era, if you will, of uh, warfare. So, well, thank you uh, for coming along. Well, good to be here. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about was this idea of the news media. Now, we, we saw during the Vietnam War that the uh, having warfare beamed into our living rooms via the television was had a major impact on citizens' views of that particular war. But today, it's uh, this is magnified many times because of the internet and so on. In your experience, how has that uh, affected the, the ability, firstly, of uh, commanders to, to lead in that environment, but, but also on the, the nature of warfare more generally? Well, firstly, on the commanders being involved, John Sanderson, who was one of our generals who commanded the United Nations effort in Cambodia, talked about having to spend between 10 and 15% of his time dealing with the media. It's become a real responsibility for commanders, and it's become something that every soldier, sailor and airman has to be conscious of because you can't be sure that everything that you say and do is going to be recorded and it will somehow be played back. Now, that can be a good thing because it holds people to account, but when it gets into security issues, that is, if the enemy can find out perhaps your intention or the timings and locations, it can be a really dangerous thing. So technology, and particularly in the media, has played a really big role in changing the way that we go about war. When you say 10 to 15% in, in Cambodia, is that a similar figure today or is that increased? If anything, I think it's increased um, both before, that is that you need to get the public on side and you can get the public on side for a campaign that you might be about to operate by engaging with the media. And um, maybe your listeners would recall Peter Cosgrove just before the deployment into East Timor. Peter Cosgrove, as the commander at the time, I recall it very well, was in a gymnasium with a big pack of press all around him up in Darwin. And he said, don't worry, mums and dads, I'll look after your kids. And it was just one of those strong messages. So a message to the public, a message to the protagonist at the time. Uh, and then while he was there, the press uh, on the battlefield but then also afterwards, and I'm just reading a book by Stan McChrystal, one of the uh, very senior US commanders in Afghanistan. So you're putting the message out before, during and afterwards, and you can't avoid it. Right, right. So uh, opportunities then that work in your favour as well as the, ne the negatives. Oh, yeah. It, it works both ways. And, and I think we used to call it psychological operations, uh, and that's really not in favour. But if you look back to the First World War, we talk about propaganda the baby bayoneting hunger. Right, right. you, you're trying to put an image out about the person that you're engaged with. So you can deal with that beforehand. You can certainly deal with it uh, during the conflict. And another example I remember well, both in, uh, say, the Solomon Islands and in Bougainville, uh, where we ran newspapers, where we ran little uh, pamphlets, where there were 
uh, radios and so on that were putting out a message to try and engage with the public, to separate them from the protagonists, but also to support them in what they were doing. Right, right. So the the other thing with the news media and its pervasiveness, um, I, I mean, if we look back to the Second World War, the uh, Hitler's use of propaganda in the radio was significant in that in that uh, in that time. But now it's possible that almost anybody can be involved in this in in the news media because of Twitter and uh, and other things like that. D- does that mean that soldiers these days would require media training, or or is there a a sort of view on how that should be dealt with? Soldiers certainly do require media training and it's part of the training that they get. Uh, more appropriately for the senior officers who are probably going to front the media. But um, as I look back on my career in, in the sort of, I guess, 2002 to 28, um, I thought the most authentic communicators with the public were the junior soldiers because they weren't looking for a media spin. They weren't trying to remember the lines that they'd been told to talk about. And I could probably give you the ones that came out of Defence Now, well-trained, well-led, well-prepared and equipped. Those sorts of things, they become a little bit sort of stereotypical and they get a bit stale. But if you've got a young soldier, a corporal or a private, who's just telling you what he's doing, it's got a real authenticity about it. I think it's something we should be encouraging because you get a really solid message out of that. But you're also relating to their mums and dads and their brothers and sisters back here in Australia and spreading that message uh, of reassurance that the Australian Defence Force is off doing something good, that they're doing it well and they're doing it in our name. In terms of social media, have there been uh, any benefits of social media? Uh, but, but not just from in terms of the outward facing with the public, but what about internally? Are, are there any sort of uh, opportunities there for using social media in a leadership capacity? Oh, there's enormous opportunities, not only in leadership and getting the message out. And you think uh, an organisation like an army, it's a big organisation, it's in lots of places. So you can get the message out. And I'm just thinking now of David Morrison's message about uh, the soldiers who were misbehaving. Uh, And he said, if you don't like it, get out. Now, there's a strong message being spread around. It was sent out over YouTube and it went outside as well. And I think that was another strong message. But soldiers can communicate with themselves. Uh, I remember one trip to Baghdad. I was in a a bunk area, a, a bedroom for soldiers. And there was a guy there with his computer on. He's talking to his girlfriend at home. Um, so it, it brings people together. There's a huge training environment that can be done over the internet. Uh, you can pass messages uh, almost instantaneously. But be careful about some of the security issues. But the social media side, I think, is overwhelmingly to the positive. We did have a couple of uh, bad experiences uh, early in the piece where uh, this is around Baghdad and places like that where people were taking inappropriate pictures. They're being posted on the web. Um, Soldiers had no bad intent about that. And once they were told, hey, you can cause us sorts of grief and you can cause yourself grief because you look like a right goose, they settled down and we didn't see any much more of that at all. Look, and we see that in all organisations. Uh, there's been a recently the Australian Public Service Commissioner has been talking about what public servants can and can't do on the net. So, yeah, yeah I suppose it's, it's, it's not unusual. But the thing that always strikes me, which is a bit different than the normal civilian use of this technology, is I recall, and this is in the late 90s, but I remember we had secure communications, but we couldn't actually contact the people at the other end because of atmospheric conditions or whatever. But somebody else had a mobile phone and we were able to communicate via mobile telephone. 
but not through the, the secure comms. And, and of course, there are some problems with that because you, you're identifiable, locatable and so forth through the mobile phone. But but in terms of how does how important or how difficult is it to secure these other means? And, and can it be done by the system? Like, like in the past, you would have it um, scrambled or whatever, but, but now is it more about the individual or can the system deal with these uh, security issues? For the individual, there's got to be a discipline that um, I think you should assume that every means of communications that you're using is insecure. Um, just cryptography these days and the mathematics behind it means you can break anything. And I'm thinking now of the uh, codes that were broken for both the Japanese and the Germans during the Second World War. Now, they thought they were secure. Well, they weren't. Uh, we knew what they were doing and we got enormous advantage out of it. Now, people are searching for secure means of communications and it's really difficult. And uh, you think of what happens in the UK here in Australia with our Australian Signals Directorate. They're employing some of the best mathematicians in the world. And, and the holy grail, and, and this is really on the technology trail now, the holy grail of communications is um, laser or optical communications, which will be really hard to break. Some of these mathematical processes, or people are talking about quantum communications, because you do want your communications to be secure, particularly those dealing with long-term planning or your intentions, in the immediate confines of a battlefield, you can probably say, well, I can talk about that now because it's only going to last for 20 or 30 minutes. But in those sorts of things, when you're talking about um, strategies and secrets at the really highest level, there is an enormous search for the absolute means of securing those comms. Right. So so we've, we've sort of talked about this idea of the news media and social media, but I'd like to talk a bit more about technology and warfare. And there's a couple of different ideas of technology here. Um, my, my first thought is um, the use of things like GoPro on helmets. So we're getting real life uh, camera footage of, of what's happening. But then at the other side, there's some research going on, which involves the University of Canberra, which is actually looking at things like peak performance from based on research with athletes and seeing how this can then be applied to uh, to, to soldiers. So uh, I'm just sort of wondering to what extent is technology uh, changing warfare? And I, I, th I think too, I mean, there's a story about the in in the 1920s, a, a guy won the Grand Prix while smoking a cigar. And, and that was probably the last time that that sort of romantic notion of the Grand Prix driver existed. After that, they were athletes. They were, you know, everything was done to the letter. And we're moving into that sort of environment with, uh, with, with the profession of arms as well. Is there any sort of place for that romantic notion of, of the courageous uh, soldier? I think you've got a mixture of all of those sorts of things that there, there has to be the courageous soldier. There has to be... And I would applaud a little bit of larrikinism, and I think that's one of the strengths of the Australian soldier. But at the same time, he's got to be a thorough professional. He's got to understand his rights and his duties and his obligations and under all the laws. But then he's got to be able to deal with some of the most sophisticated equipment in the world. And I'm thinking of just observing some of our junior commanders on operations in Afghanistan, for example, in the early 2000s. Um, a major had available to him some of the most secret information that you could ever imagine. He had available to him, stacked up in the air, jet aircraft, he had available all sorts of things that he could just call down almost at will. So that sort of stuff is there. Uh, and he probably wasn't chewing on a cigar or, or anything like that at the time. He was thinking because 
Uh, we're not overloading them, but we're giving them access to these sorts of things. And similarly for uh, a young private soldier, what used to be called a grunt, well, he's on the ground. He's got uh, night vision equipment available to him. He's got personal communications. He's probably got a laser ranging device available to him. He's got some of the best clothing and equipment to make sure that he's comfortable, that he's going to be able to operate in different weather conditions. And we've applied technology to the battlefield uh, right from those very highest intelligence levels all the way down to the nature of the boots and the socks that a soldier would wear to make sure that they're delivering the optimum effect on the battlefield. And it's, it's really quite astounding. And it's happened very, very quickly. Uh, in my career, I, can, uh, I joined just as we were finishing uh, in Vietnam. We went off to Timor and essentially we were carrying the same sort of equipment, the same sort of clothes, and figures from Defence would say it cost about $3,000 to equip a soldier on the battlefield. Uh, right now, a soldier in Iraq or Afghanistan looks completely different, and it's costing upwards of twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a soldier to put him on the battlefield. He's got access to technology and communications. Uh, he's got some form of heads-up display that he's able to write his reports. It's just stunning to see what we're able to do. And well done the scientists because they're making a real difference and they're keeping people alive. That's performing on the battlefield. Then I think the other huge advance is when you look at the medical support that's available to people. It used to be that uh, most casualties through history to soldiers were from a disease, uh, from uh, ill health. Uh, we've been able to eradicate a lot of that. Uh, a lot of casualties occurred because uh, we weren't wearing body armour, for example. But also, casualties after being injured, we now talk about the golden hour. If you can get someone who's been injured to a surgical facility, helicopters moving very quickly, and they've got a really good chance of surviving. So in terms of the, the individual technology, and I, I want to just ask you about the GoPro cameras, as an sure. example, yeah. uh, the amount of times uh, you know I've had issues on the road, and the police have even said to me, well, "Do you have a GoPro footage of, of what happened?" And of course, I didn't. But how does that uh, how does that affect not so much on the security side, but if footage of what the soldiers were doing were to be seen publicly, uh, what sort of problems does this create? And is it a good or a bad thing? It's probably both. Um, war's awful. And I think, you know, I'm, the image is there that soldiers kill each other, um, damage, chaos on the battlefield. Uh, people get blown up, vehicles, houses. Um, that's what happens. So, yeah, we do need to be a bit careful there. Um, and I recall that early in the piece, soldiers started to carry these GoPros and some of it was in a defensive measure. Uh, they were upset that uh, they were being called to account for things that had happened on the battlefield. They said, well, I'm going to wear it and I'm going to prove what I was doing. I think that's reasonable. It shouldn't be uncontrolled, and it's a bit like those embarrassing images from Baghdad early in the piece. Soldiers were doing silly things, so there's got to be some control over that. But thinking from a commander's point of view, you send a patrol out, it's a reconnaissance patrol. Uh, you want them to report on what they're seeing, and normally they'd have to sit down and put it in their little vui tui and write it out and then send it back over some communications means, perhaps having to encrypt it themselves. Now with uh, satellites uh, up in space with the communications, worldwide global satellite systems and so on, and as we saw when uh, 
Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, images from the ground in real life. That's the sort of stuff that's going on, and you're able to send those messages back. So there's a real advantage in that. So, so there's a couple of things sort of happening here. On the, the one hand, we have this instant access, real-time access, without necessarily needing to, to be in location. But then the other side of it is completely removing the human from uh, from warfare. And, and so I'd like to sort of just ask about UAVs and robotics. And talking with uh, Professor Mark Evans at IGPA, Mark was suggesting that um, ethics around the use of machines in all aspects of life is going to be the, the next big thing in terms of uh, uh, understanding how humans and, and, and machines interact. But, but what about in, in, in warfare? I mean, what does what does it mean for warfare to have these uh, unmanned vehicles, so to speak? Well, it takes a man out of danger, uh, and I think there's an advantage to that. Uh, but you must always maintain through all of this a man in the loop, and I think this is where the division will start to be really uh, examined. So a drone, for example, uh, it's sent to a target, and generally... Um, the operator, that is the person who's going to press the trigger, uh, can see the target. And um, the target is assessed beforehand by lawyers and commanders. There are really stringent requirements on what is a target, when you can fire, collateral damage, for example. Uh, and it still goes back to those sort of principles of war around uh, humanity and proportionality and so on, and that there are things that you just can't attack. Uh, but there's a man in the loop. and So for a drone, I think that's really important. And similarly, we're doing the same sorts of things now, aren't we, with, uh, for example, and you, you know about artillery, uh, but also aircraft. They're dropping bombs, and there's a man in the loop because he drops the bomb. Now, the robotics, um, well, if we can take away some of the soldier's load, so you've got a robot carrying the load and, and some of the exoskeleton work that people are doing to make people stronger, no issues with that. Uh, but if we're talking about sending a robot off into the field with some sort of coded instruction and he said that if you see this target, you shoot, I think we need to think very carefully about that in that uh, the robot may make a mistake and I think that's where the ethics comes into it. But then again, uh, think about a minefield in war. Uh, it's out there, it's done, it's not doing anything, but it's still got the capability to kill somebody. So we've got to think our way through these things really carefully. But I think the answer at the moment is to keep a man in the loop. It's really interesting, that example of the minefield, because they can have ramifications years afterwards, yeah. as, as we've seen. Well, yeah. think of the poor kids up in Afghanistan and uh, even in many uh, Asian countries still, they're still demining huge areas or their areas in, in Cambodia, for example, that really can't be used. So the next thing I want to ask about then is, as a political scientist, I'm interested in the Clausewitz sort of version of war, meaning that uh, war is an extension of policy by other means. Um, but whether it's because of global reach and our ability to move around the planet more readily than we could in the past, but it would seem to be that we're having lots of policy failures that are leading to this notion of warfare. But at the same time, we've got the problem that warfare is not against a clear nation-state enemy as it, as it may, may have been in the past. And, it, and in fact... For example, what's happening in Syria, in the past we might have called it a civil war, whereas now it's it's almost like several different wars going on simultaneously. And so we've got all this technology, we've got all this uh, all of these issues that have changed the nature of war from the past. What does it mean to actually win a war today? 
What, what does victory mean? Uh, well, I teach out at the Centre for Defence and Strategic Studies and uh, one of the first things we start on, the, on their bigger exercises is what does success look like? Uh, what does victory look like? Or how do you know when you've won the war? Because, and, and I'm even reminded here at... Um, Cicero said, we go to war so that we may live in peace. Well, if you look out and about in lots of communities, what's peace? Uh, Syria, for example, and look at some of the African communities. So this whole element of political violence is about, I think we're incredibly lucky here in Australia, the way our politics work, that uh, have a vote, 51%, okay, teams change, we'll get another go in three or four years' time or, or whatever, depending state or federal. But war has changed, and I think some of the... And we've talked about it, the technology has really changed. Uh, but I think another one of the changes is um, the technology has got so far that it's forced people into what we could call asymmetric warfare. So why attack an enemy at his strength? We're going to go for his weak point. Um, another line of thought goes that um, it's war among the population. Uh, British General Rupert Smith has talked about the fact that war exists no more. Uh, it's his book, which is called The Utility of Force, and it's the opening sentence, and it's really neat. War exists no more. But he, what he means is that industrial-scale warfare, where it was total war, the sort of the levee en masse that we saw Napoleon start, we're not seeing that so much. It's just violence all over the place. So he's not talking about this big industrial war. There's still a threat of it because look at the armies of the world and the nuclear weapons we've got. We could really destroy ourselves pretty efficiently. But he's talking about this war among the population where it's become... And he, he talks about it's war in the headspace. It's the way that we think rather than in the battle space. And I think it's a really good way of looking at it. So this grows out of political violence, which... Know, the dead German Clausewitz, it's a long time ago, but he's right. War is the extension of politics by other means. So we, we're trying to just uh, understand this sort of stuff. This is terrorism, which is amongst us, and you really don't need weapons of war to kill people. Democratisation of weapons and so on, securitisation and so on. Those sorts of things. So we've got to come to grips with it. But what I think it means is that the world's a more dangerous place. Just to finish up, you've been uh, teaching here at the University of Canberra for some time, and I'm, I'm just wondering that now you've had a reasonable length of time away from, uh, f from the Army in particular, and, and you've been dealing with civilian students who are in interested in this space. I, I just wonder, what sort of skills would you see the modern soldier needing? But I don't mean in terms of the physical or the soldierly skills, but in terms of their sort of understanding of things like politics and policy and, and international relations. I mean, how important is that? And to what level does it need to be pushed down in, in terms of uh, the, the ranks? It's got to go all, and I mean all of the way down. And, and just, uh, they're not neat sayings, but they're sayings that uh, we need to be careful of. And, and David Kilcullen has talked about the importance of anthropology on the battlefield. You need to be able to understand the culture that you're in, uh, particularly if you're in the middle of a city or in a souk or a market or something like that. Uh, how are people going to react around you? So I think it's really important that people have a firm grounding in understanding the cultural and social mores of the community they're in because it's war among the population. Um, we used to say to our soldiers, the most important decision you're likely to make today is the decision not to fire rather than the decision to fire because you can make a mistake really easily in that sort of environment. So um, I think 
really important that you have a, a level of language skills, a level of understanding of the cultures of the communities that you're in, because in many cases, you're there to help them, you're there to support them. Uh, Afghanistan was really, and it's not tried, but it's a, a bit of a saying, it was helping little girls go to school. So it's helping them on their way to school, how to build market, how to build a road, where to build the road. Uh, and everybody needs to be involved in this. Uh, General Charles uh, Krulak III, um, US Marine Corps General, talked about the three block war. Uh, by that he meant that in any one day, within three blocks, one patrol might be delivering humanitarian aid, they might be engaged in some form of peace enforcement operation, or they could be in a real battle breaking into a stronghold of terrorists or some form of enemy force. So our soldiers and their leaders have to be well attuned to these issues. And I think you talked about the technical and proficiency skills. Yeah, you've got to be able to hit the target. You've got to be able to do all of those sorts of things, pass messages and uh, use radios. Got to be able to navigate. Uh, but you've also got to be able to understand that uh, I have to be able to support people. And so one of the things the military talk about these days is I'm not here to teach you what to think, I'm here to teach you how to think. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it. That's a really nice way to finish. I mean, that's exactly what I say to my students. Thanks so much for joining with me today, Peter. I appreciate your time. Great talking to you, Mike.